Section 10 of Narrative of the Life and Adventures of Henry Bibb, an American Slave, written by himself. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by James K. White. Narrative of the Life and Adventures of Henry Bibb, an American Slave, written by himself. Chapter 10. Cruel Treatment on Whitfield's Farm. Exposure of the Children. Mode of Extorting Extra Labor. Neglect of the Sick. Strange Medicine Used. Death of Our Second Child. My first impressions when I arrived on the deacon's farm were that he was far more like what the people called the devil than he was like a deacon. Not many days after my arrival there, I heard the deacon tell one of the slave girls that he had bought her for a wife for his boy Stephen, which office he compelled her fully to perform against her will. This he enforced by a threat. At first the poor girl neglected to do this, having no sort of affection for the man, but she was finally forced to it by an application of the driver's lash, as threatened by the deacon. The next thing I observed was that he made the slave-driver strip his own wife and flog her for not doing just as her master had ordered. He had a white overseer and a colored man for a driver, whose business it was to watch and drive the slaves in the field and do the flogging according to the orders of the overseer. Next, a mulatto girl who waited about the house on her mistress displeased her, for which the deacon stripped and tied her up. He then handed me the lash, and ordered me to put it on, but I told him I never had done the like, and hoped he would not compel me to do it. He then informed me that I was to be his overseer, and that he had bought me for that purpose. He was paying a man eight hundred dollars a year to oversee, and he believed I was competent to do the same business, and if I would do it upright, he would put nothing harder on me to do, and if I knew not how to flog a slave, he would set me an example by which I might be governed. He then commenced on this poor girl, and gave her two hundred lashes before he had her untied. After giving her fifty lashes, he stopped and lectured her a while, asking her if she thought that she could obey her mistress, etc. She promised to do all in her power to please him and her mistress, if he would have mercy on her. But this plea was all vain. He commenced on her again, and this flogging was carried on in the most inhuman manner until she had received two hundred stripes on her naked quivering flesh, tied up and exposed to the public gaze of all. And this was the example that I was to copy after. He then compelled me to wash her back off with strong salt brine before she was untied, which was so revolting to my feelings that I could not refrain from shedding tears. For some cause he never called on me again to flog a slave. I presume he saw that I was not savage enough. The above were about the first items of the deacon's conduct which struck me with peculiar disgust. After having enjoyed the blessings of civil and religious liberty for a season, to be dragged into that horrible place with my family, to linger out my existence without the aid of religious societies or the light of revelation, was more than I could endure. I really felt as if I had got into one of the darkest corners of the earth. I thought it was almost out of humanity's reach, and should never again have the pleasure of hearing the gospel sound, as I could see no way by which I could extricate myself. 
yet I never omitted to pray for deliverance. I had faith to believe that the Lord could see our wrongs and hear our cries. I was not used quite as bad as the regular field hands, as the greater part of my time was spent working about the house, and my wife was the cook. This country was full of pine timber, and every slave had to prepare a light wood torch overnight, made of pine knots, to meet the overseer with, before daylight in the morning. Each person had to have his torch lit, and come with it in his hand to the gin house, before the overseer and driver, so as to be ready to go to the cotton field by the time they could see to pick out cotton. These lights looked beautiful at a distance. The object of blowing the horn for them two hours before day was that they should get their bite to eat before they went to the field, that they need not stop to eat but once during the day. Another object was to do up their flogging, which had been omitted overnight. I have often heard the sound of the slave-driver's lash on the backs of the slaves, and their heart-rending shrieks, which were enough to melt the heart of humanity, even among the most barbarous nations of the earth. But the deacon would keep no overseer on his plantation, who neglected to perform this every morning. I have heard him say that he was no better pleased than when he could hear the overseer's loud, complaining voice, long before daylight in the morning, and the sound of the driver's lash among the toiling slaves. This was a very warm climate, abounding with mosquitoes, gallinippers, and other insects which were exceedingly annoying to the poor slaves by night and day, at their quarters and in the field, but more especially to their helpless little children, which they had to carry with them to the cotton fields, where they had to sit on the damp ground alone from morning till night, exposed to the scorching rays of the sun, liable to be bitten by poisonous rattlesnakes, which are plenty in that section of the country, or to be devoured by large alligators, which are often seen creeping through the cotton fields, going from swamp to swamp, seeking their prey. The cotton planters generally never allow a slave mother time to go to the house, or quarter during the day to nurse her child. Hence they have to carry them to the cotton fields and tie them in the shade of a tree, or in clusters of high weeds about in the fields, where they can go to them at noon, when they are allowed to stop work for one half hour. This is the reason why so very few slave children are raised on these cotton plantations. The mothers have no time to take care of them, and they are often found dead in the field and in the quarter for want of the care of their mothers. But I never was eyewitness to a case of this kind, but have heard many narrated by my slave brothers and sisters, some of which occurred on the deacon's plantation. Their plan of getting large quantities of cotton picked is not only to extort it from them by the lash, but hold out an inducement and deceive them by giving small prizes. For example, the overseer will offer something worth one or two dollars to any slave who will pick out the most cotton in one day dividing the hands off in three classes, and offering a prize to the one who will pick out the most cotton in each of the classes. By this means, they are all interested in trying to get the prize. After making them try it over several times, and weighing what cotton they pick every night, the overseer can tell just how much every hand can pick. He then gives the present to those that pick the most cotton, and then if they do not pick just as much afterward, they are flogged. I have known the slaves to be so much fatigued from labor that they could scarcely get to their lodging places from the field at night, and then they would have to prepare something to eat before they could lie down to rest. Their corn they had to grind on a handmill for breadstuff, or pound it in a mortar, and by the time they would get their suppers it would be midnight. 
then they would herd down all together and take but two or three hours rest before the overseer's horn called them up again to prepare for the field at the time of sickness among slaves they had but very little attention the master was to be the judge of their sickness but never had studied the medical profession he always pronounced a slave who said he was sick a liar and a hypocrite said there was nothing the matter and he only wanted to keep from work his remedy was most generally strong red pepper tea boiled till it was red he would make them drink a pint cup full of it at one dose if he should not get better very soon after it the dose was repeated if that should not accomplish the object for which it was given or have the desired effect a pot or kettle was then put over the fire with a large quantity of chimney soot which was boiled down until it was as strong as the juice of tobacco and the poor sick slave was compelled to drink a quart of it this would operate on the system like salts or castor oil but if the slave should not be very ill he would rather work as long as he could stand up than to take this dreadful medicine if it should be a very valuable slave sometimes a physician was sent for and something done to save him but no special aid is afforded the suffering slave even in the last trying hour when he is called to grapple with the grim monster death he has no bible no family altar no minister to address to him the consolations of the gospel before he launches into the spirit world as to the burial of slaves but very little more care is taken of their dead bodies than if they were dumb beasts my wife was very sick while we were both living with the deacon we expected every day would be her last while she was sick we lost our second child and i was compelled to dig my own child's grave and bury it myself without even a box to put it in end of chapter 10 recording by james k white chula vista